This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy, it's wooly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else, bleh, somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, BunnySlippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from, all kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at BunnySlippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, BunnySlippers.com. Highland Cow Slipper, it's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland Cow Slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio, which does have a chilly floor even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. <laughs> anyway, that's one reason DB Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know, <laughs> somewhere in your house, maybe, uh, a robot is playing music for you. Enjoy. So here we go. Uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on PGTTCM.com. You can check the show notes to find out where to go, or you can just simply, I don't know, find us on Facebook. We've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts. It keeps the show going. Makes me happy. Makes you happy. Everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything, we've got a contact form at pgttcm.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go. The cry of the naked was sweeping the world, from the peasant toiling in Russia, the lady lolling in London, the chieftain burning in Africa, and the Eskimo freezing in Alaska. From long lines of hungry men, from patient sad-eyed women, from old folk and creeping children went up the cry, clothes, clothes. Far away, the wide black land that belts the south, where Miss Smith worked and Miss Taylor drudged, and Bless and Zora dreamed. The dense black land sensed the cry and heard the bound of answering life within the vast dark breast. All that dark earth heaved in mighty travail with the bursting bowls of the cotton, while black attendant earth spirits swarmed above, sweating and crooning to its birth pains. After the miracle of the bursting bowls, when the land was brightest with the piled mist of the fleece, and when the cry of the naked was loudest in the mouths of men, 
A sudden cloud of workers swarmed between the cotton and the naked, spinning and weaving and sewing and carrying the fleece, and mining and minting and bringing the silver, till the song of service filled the world, and the poetry of toil was in the souls of the laborers. Yet ever and always there were tense, silent, white-faced men moving in that swarm, who felt no poetry and heard no song, and one of these was John Taylor. He was tall, thin, cold, and tireless, and he moved among the watchers of this world of trade. In the rich Wall Street offices of Gray and Easterly brokers, Mr. Taylor, as chief and confidential clerk, surveyed the world's nakedness and the supply of cotton to clothe it. The object of his watching was frankly stated to himself and to his world. He purposed going into business neither for his own health nor for the healing or clothing of the peoples, but to apply his knowledge of the world's nakedness and of black men's toil in such a way as to bring himself wealth. In this he was but following the teaching of his highest ideal, lately deceased, Mr. Job Gray. Mr. Gray had so successfully manipulated the cotton market that while black men who made the cotton starved in Alabama and white men who bought it froze in Siberia, he himself sat high on a throne of royal state that far outshone the wealth of Ormuz or of Ind. Notwithstanding this, he died eventually, leaving the burden of his wealth to his bewildered wife and his business to the astute Mr. Easterly, not simply to Mr. Easterly, but in a sense to his spiritual heir, John Taylor. To be sure, Mr. Taylor had but a modest salary and no financial interest in the business, but he had knowledge and business daring, effrontery even, and the determination was fixed in his mind to be a millionaire at no distant date. Some cautious flyers on the market gave him enough surplus to send his sister Mary through the high school of his country home in New Hampshire and afterward through Wellesley College, although just why a woman should want to go through college was inexplicable to John Taylor, and he was still uncertain as to the wisdom of his charity. When she had an offer to teach in the South, John Taylor hurried her off for two reasons. He was profoundly interested in the cotton belt, and there she might be of service to him, and secondly, he had spent all the money on her that he intended to at present, and he wanted her to go to work. As an investment, he did not consider Mary a success. Her letters intimated very strongly her intention not to return to Miss Smith's school, but they also brought information, disjointed and incomplete to be sure, which mightily interested Mr. Taylor and sent him to atlases, encyclopedias, and census reports. When he went to that little lunch with old Mrs. Gray, he was not sure he wanted his sister to leave the cotton belt just yet. After lunch, he was sure he did not want her to leave. The rich Mrs. Gray was at the crisis of her fortunes. She was an elderly lady in those uncertain years beyond fifty, and she had been left suddenly with more millions than she could easily count. Personally, she was inclined to spend her money in bettering the world right off in such ways as might from time to time seem attractive. This course, to her husband's former partner and present executor, Mr. Edward Easterly, was not only foolish but wicked, and, incidentally, distinctly unprofitable to him. He had expressed himself strongly to Mrs. Gray last night at dinner and had reinforced his argument by a pointed letter written this morning. To John Taylor, Mrs. Gray's disposal of the income was unbelievable blasphemy against the memory of a mighty man. He did not put this in words to Mrs. Gray. He was only head clerk in her late husband's office, but he became watchful and thoughtful. 
He ate his soup in silence when she descanted on various benevolent schemes. Now, what do you know, she asked finally, about Negroes, about educating them? Mr. Taylor, over his fish, was about to deny all knowledge of any sort on the subject, but all at once he recollected his sister, and a sudden gleam of light radiated his mental gloom. Have a sister who is, uh, devoting herself to teaching them, he said. Is that so? cried Mrs. Gray joyfully. Where is she? In Toombs County, Alabama. In Mr. Taylor consulted a remote mental pocket. In Miss Sarah Smith's school. Why, how fortunate! I'm so glad I mentioned the matter. You see, Miss Smith is a sister of a friend of ours, Congressman Smith of New Jersey, and she has just written to me for help. A very touching letter, too, about the poor blacks. My father set great store by blacks and was a leading abolitionist before he died. Mr. Taylor was thinking fast. Yes, the name of Congressman Peter Smith was quite familiar. Mr. Easterly, as chairman of the Republican State Committee of New Jersey, had been compelled to discipline Mr. Smith pretty severely for certain socialistic votes in the House, and consequently his future career was uncertain. It was important that such a man should not have too much to do with Mrs. Gray's philanthropies, at least in his present position. Should like to have you meet and talk with my sister, Mrs. Gray. She's a Wellesley graduate, said Taylor finally. Mrs. Gray was delighted. It was a combination which she felt she needed. Here was a college girl who could direct her philanthropies and her etiquette during the summer. Forthwith, Mary Taylor received an intimation from her brother. That vast interest depended on her summer vacation. Thus, it had happened that Miss Taylor came to Lake George for her vacation after the first year at the Smith School, and she and Miss Smith had silently agreed as she left that it would be better for her not to return. But the gods of Lower Broadway thought otherwise. Not that Miss Taylor did not believe in Miss Smith's work; she was too honest not to believe in education. But she was sure that this was not her work. And she had not yet perfected in her own mind any theory of the world into which black folk fitted. She was rather taken back, therefore, to be regarded as an expert on the problem. First, her brother attacked her not simply on cotton, but to her great surprise, on Negro education. And after listening to her halting, uncertain remarks, he suggested to her certain matters which it would be better for her to believe when Mrs. Gray talked to her. Interested in donkeys, you see," he concluded, "and looks to you to tell things. Better go easy and suggest a waiting game before she goes in heavy. But Miss Smith needs money," the New England conscience prompted. John Taylor cut in sharply. "We all need money, and I know people who need Mrs. Gray's more than Miss Smith does at present." Miss Taylor found the Lake George colony charming. It was not ultra fashionable, but it had wealth and leisure and some breeding. Especially was this true of the circumscribed, rather exclusive set which centered around the Vanderpools of New York and Boston. They, or rather, Mister Vanderpool's connections were of old Dutch New York stock. His father it was who had built the Lake George cottage. Missus Vanderpool was a Wells of Boston and endured Lake George now and then during the summer for her husband's sake, although she regarded it all as rather a joke. This summer promised to be unusually lonesome for her, and she was meditating a retreat to the Massachusetts North Shore when she chanced to meet Mary Taylor at a miscellaneous dinner and found her interesting. She discovered that this young woman knew things, 
that she could talk books and that she was rather pretty. To be sure, she knew no people, but Mrs. Vanderpool knew enough to even things. By the by, I met some charming Alabama people last winter in Montgomery. The Cresswells, do you know them? She asked one day as they were lounging in wicker chairs on the Vanderpool porch. Then she answered the query herself. No, of course you could not. It is too bad that your work deprives you of the society of people of your class. Now, my ideal is a set of Negro schools where the white teachers could know the Cresswells. Why, why, yes, faltered Miss Taylor. But wouldn't that be difficult? Why should it be? I mean, would the Cresswells approve of educating Negroes? Oh, educating! The word conceals so much. Now I take it the Cresswells would object to instructing them in French and in dinner etiquette and tea gowns, and so in fact would I. But teach them how to handle a hoe and to sew and cook. I have reason to know that people like the Cresswells would be delighted. And with the teachers of it? Why not? Provided, of course, they were, well, gentlefolk and associated accordingly. But one must associate with one's pupils. Oh, certainly, certainly. Just as one must associate with one's maids and chauffeurs and dressmakers. Cordially and kindly, but with a difference. But, but, dear Mrs. Vanderpool, you wouldn't want your children trained that way, would you? Certainly not, my dear. But these are not my children. They are the children of Negroes. We can't quite forget that, can we? No, I suppose not, Miss Taylor admitted a little helplessly. But it seems to me that's the modern idea of taking culture to the masses. Frankly, then, the modern idea is not my idea. It is too socialistic. And as for culture applied to the masses, you are to a paradox. Masses and work is the truth one must face. And culture and work? Quite incompatible, I assure you, my dear. She stretched her silken limbs lazily while Miss Taylor sat silently staring at the waters. Just then, Mrs. Gray drove up in her new red motor. Up to the time of Mary Taylor's arrival, the acquaintance of the Vanderpools and Mrs. Gray had been a matter chiefly of smiling bows. After Miss Taylor came, there had been calls and casual intercourse to Mrs. Gray's great gratification and Mrs. Vanderpool's mingled amusement and annoyance. Mrs. Gray announced the arrival of the Easterlies and John Taylor for the weekend. As Mrs. Vanderpool could think of nothing less boring, she consented to dine. The atmosphere of Mrs. Gray's ornate cottage was different from that of the Vanderpools. The display of wealth and splendor had a touch of the barbaric. Mary Taylor liked it, although she found the Vanderpool atmosphere more subtly satisfying. There was a certain grim power beneath the gray's mahogany and velvets that thrilled while it appalled. Precisely that side of the thing appealed to her brother. He would have seen little or nothing in the plain elegance yonder, while here he saw a Japanese vase that cost no cent less than a thousand dollars. He meant to be able to duplicate it some day. He knew that Gray was poor and less knowing than he sixty years ago. The dead millionaire had begun his fortune by buying and selling cotton, traveling in the South in reconstruction times, and sending his agents. In this way, he made his thousands. Then he took a step forward and, instead of following the prices, induced the prices to follow him. 
two or three small cotton corners brought him his tens of thousands. About this time, Easterly joined him and pointed out a new road, the buying and selling of stock in various cotton mills and other industrial enterprises. Gray hesitated, but Easterly pushed him on, and he made his hundreds of thousands. Then Easterly proposed buying controlling interests in certain large mills and gradually consolidating them. The plan grew and succeeded, and Gray made his millions. Then Gray stopped. He had money enough and would venture no further. He was going to retire and eat peanuts, he said with a chuckle. Easterly was disgusted. He, too, had made millions. Not as many as Gray, but a few. It was not, however, simply money that he wanted, but power. The lust of financial dominion had gripped his soul, and he had a vision of a vast trust of cotton manufacturing covering the land. He talked this incessantly to Gray, but Gray continued to shake his head. The thing was too big for his imagination. He was bent on retiring, and just as he had set the date a year hence, he inadvertently died. On the whole, Mr. Easterly was glad of his partner's definite withdrawal since he left his capital behind him until he found his vast plans about to be circumvented by Mrs. Gray withdrawing this capital from his control. To give to the niggers and Chinamen, he snorted to John Taylor and strode up and down the veranda. John Taylor removed his coat, lighted a black cigar, and elevated his heels. The ladies were in the parlor where the female Easterlies were prostrating themselves before Mrs. Vanderpool. Just what is your plan? asked Taylor, quite as if he did not know. Why, man, the transfer of a hundred millions of stock would give me control of the cotton mills of America. Think of it, the biggest trust next to steel. Why not bigger? asked Taylor, imperturbably puffing away. Mr. Easterly eyed him. He had regarded Taylor hitherto as a very valuable asset to the business, had relied on his knowledge of routine, his judgment, and his honesty. But he detected tonight a new tone in his clerk, something almost authoritative and self-reliant. He paused and smiled at him. Bigger? But John Taylor was dead in earnest. He did not smile. First, there's England and all Europe. Why not bring them into the trust? Possibly later, but first America. Of course, I've got my eyes on the European situation and feelers out, but such matters are more difficult and slower of adjustment over there. So damned much law and gospel. But there's another side. What's that? You are planning to combine and control the manufacture of cotton. Yes. But how about your raw material? The Steel Trust owns its iron mines. Of course, mines could be monopolized and hold the trust up, but our raw material is perfectly safe. Farms growing smaller, farms isolated, and we fixing the price. It's a cinch. Are you sure? Taylor surveyed him with a narrowed look. Certain. I'm not. I've been looking up things, and there are three points you'd better study. First, cotton farms are not getting smaller, they're getting bigger, almighty fast. And there's a big cotton land monopoly in sight. Second, the banks and wholesale houses in the South can control the cotton output if they work together. Third, watch the Southern Farmers League of Big Landlords. Mr. Easterly threw away his cigar and sat down. Taylor straightened up, switched on the porch light, and took a bundle of papers from his coat pocket. Here are census figures, he said, commercial reports and letters. They poured over them a half hour, then Easterly arose. There's something in it, he admitted. But what can we do? What do you propose? 
monopolized the growth as well as the manufacture of cotton and used the first to club European manufacturers into submission. Easterly stared at him. Good Lord, he ejaculated. You're crazy. But Taylor smiled a slow, thin smile and put away his papers. Easterly continued to stare at his subordinate with a sort of fascination, with the awe that one feels when genius unexpectedly reveals itself from a source hitherto regarded as entirely ordinary. At last he drew a long breath, remarking indefinitely, I'll think it over. A stir in the parlor indicated departure. Will you watch the Farmers League and note its success and methods, counseled John Taylor, his tone and manner unchanged. Then figure what it might do in the hands of, let us say, friends. Who's running it? A Colonel Cresswell is its head and happens also to be the force behind it. Aristocratic family, big planter, near where my sister teaches. Hmm, well, we'll watch him. And say, as Easterly was turning away, you know Congressman Smith? I should say I did. Well, Mrs. Gray seems to be depending on him for advice in distributing some of her charity funds. Easterly appeared startled. She is, is she? He exclaimed. But here come the ladies. He went forward at once, but John Taylor drew back. He noted Mrs. Vanderpool and thought her too thin and pale. The dashing young Miss Easterly was more to his taste. He intended to have a wife like that one of these days. Mary, said he to his sister as he finally rose to go, tell me about the Cresswells. Mary explained to him at length the impossibility of her knowing much about the local white aristocracy of Toombs County, and then told him all she had heard. Mrs. Gray talked to you much? Yes. About darky schools? Yes. What does she intend to do? I think she will aid Miss Smith first. Did you suggest anything? Well, I told her what I thought about cooperating with the local white people, the Cresswells. Yes, you see, Mrs. Vanderpool knows the Cresswells. Does, eh? Good. Say, that's a good point. You just bear heavy on it. Cooperate with the Cresswells. Why, yes, but... You see, John, I don't just know whether one could cooperate with the Cresswells or not. One hears such contradictory stories of them. But there must be some other white people. Stuff. It's the Cresswells we want. Well, Mary was very dubious. They are the most important. End of Chapter 6 When she went south late in September, Mary Taylor had two definite but allied objects. She was to get all possible business information concerning the Cresswells, and she was to induce Miss Smith to prepare for Mrs. Gray's benevolence by interesting the local whites in her work. The program attracted Miss Taylor. She felt in touch, even if dimly and slightly, with great industrial movements, and she felt, too, like a discerning pioneer in philanthropy. Both roles she liked. Besides, they held each certain promises of social prestige in society, Miss Taylor argued. One must have, even in Alabama. Bless Alwyn met her at the train. He was growing to be a big, fine, bronze giant, and Mary was glad to see him. She especially tried, in the first few weeks of opening school, to glean as much information as possible concerning the community, and particularly the Cresswells. She found the Negro youth quicker, surer, and more intelligent in his answers than those she questioned elsewhere, and she gained real enjoyment from her long talks with him. Isn't Bless developing splendidly? She said to Miss Smith one afternoon. There was an unmistakable note of enthusiasm in her voice, 
Miss Smith slowly closed her letter file but did not look up. Yes, she said crisply. He's 18 now, quite a man. And most interesting to talk with. Hmm, very. Dryly, Mary was busy with her own thoughts and she did not notice the other woman's manner. Do you know, she pursued, I'm a little afraid of one thing. So am I. Oh, you've noted it too. His friendship with that impossible girl, Sora. Miss Smith gave her a searching look. What of it? She demanded. She is so far beneath him. How so? She is a bold, godless thing. I don't understand her. The two are not quite the same. Of course not, but she is unnaturally forward. Too bright, Miss Smith amplified. Yes, she knows quite too much. You surely remember that awful scarlet dress? Well, all her clothes have arrived or remained at a simplicity and vividness that is, well, immodest. Does she think them immodest? What she thinks is a problem. The problem, you mean? Well, yes. They paused a moment. Then Miss Smith said slowly, What I don't understand, I don't judge. <laughs> no, but you can't always help seeing and meeting it, laughed Miss Taylor. Certainly not. I don't try. I caught the meeting and seeing. It is the only way. Well, perhaps for us, but not for a boy like Bless and a girl like Zora. True, men and women must exercise judgment in their intercourse, and she glanced sharply at Miss Taylor. My dear, you yourself must not forget that Bless Alwyn is a man. Far up the road came a low, long musical shouting. Then, with creaking and straining of wagons, four great black mules dashed into sight with twelve bursting bales of yellowish cotton looming and swaying behind. The drivers and helpers were lolling and laughing and singing, but Miss Taylor did not hear nor see. She had sat suddenly upright. Her face had flamed crimson and then went dead white. Miss... Miss Smith! She gasped, overwhelmed with dismay, a picture of wounded pride and consternation. Miss Smith turned around very methodically and took her hand, but while she spoke, the girl merely stared at her in stony silence. Now, dear, don't mean more than I do. I'm an old woman, and I've seen many things. This is but a little corner of the world, and yet many people pass here in thirty years. The trouble with new teachers who come is that, like you, they cannot see black folk as human. All to them are either impossible Zors or else lovable blessings. They forget that Zor is not to be annihilated, but studied and understood, and that Bless is a young man of eighteen, not a clod. But that he should dare, Mary began breathlessly. He hasn't dared. Miss Smith went gently on. No thought of you but as a teacher has yet entered his dear simple head. But my point is simply this. He's a man, and a human one. And if you keep on making much over him and talking to him and petting him, he'll have the right to interpret your manner in his own way, the same that any young man would. But, but he's a, a, a Negro? To be sure he is, and a man in addition. Now, dear, don't take this too much to heart. This is not a rebuke, but a clumsy warning. I am simply trying to make clear to you why you should be careful. Treat poor Zora a little more lovingly, and bless a little less warmly. They are just human, but oh so human. Mary Taylor rose up stiffly and mumbled a brief good night. 
She went to her room and sat down in the dark. The mere mention of the thing was to her so preposterous, no, loathsome, she kept repeating. She slowly undressed in the dark and heard the rumbling of the cotton wagons as they swayed toward town. The cry of the naked was sweeping the world, and yonder in the night black men were answering the call. They knew not what or why they answered, but obeyed the irresistible call with hearts light and song upon their lips, the song of service. They lashed their mules and drank their whiskey, and all night the piled fleece swept by Mary Taylor's window, flying, flying to that far cry. Miss Taylor turned uneasily in her bed and jerked the bedclothes about her ears. Mrs. Vanderpool is right, she confided to the night, with something of the awe with which one suddenly comprehends a hidden oracle. There must be a difference, always, always, an impudent Negro. All night she dreamed, and all day. Especially when trim and immaculate, she sat in her chair and looked down upon fifty dark faces and upon Zora. Zora sat thinking. She saw neither Miss Taylor nor the long straight rows of desks and faces. She heard neither the drone of the spellers, nor did she hear Miss Taylor say, Zora? She heard and saw none of this. She only heard the prattle of the birds in the wood, far down where the silver fleece would be planted. For the time of cotton planting was coming. The gray and drizzle of December was past in the hesitation of January. Already a certain warmth and glow had stolen into the air, and the swamp was calling its child with low, seductive voice. She knew where the first leaves were bursting, where tiny flowers nestled, and where young living things looked upward to the light and cried and crawled. A wistful longing was stealing into her heart. She wanted to be free. She wanted to run and dance and sing. But Bless wanted Zora. This time she heard the call, but did not heed it. Miss Taylor was very tiresome and was forever doing and saying silly things. So Zora paid no attention, but sat still and thought. Yes, she would show Bless the place that very night. She had kept it secret from him until now, out of perverseness, out of her love of mystery and secrets. But tonight, after school, when he met her on the big road with the clothes, she would take him and show him the chosen spot. Soon she was aware that school had been dismissed, and she leisurely gathered up her books and rose. Mary Taylor regarded her in perplexed despair. Oh, these people! Mrs. Vanderpool was right. Culture, and some masses at least, were not to be linked. And two, culture and work, were they incompatible? At any rate, culture and this work were. Now, there was Mrs. Vanderpool. She toiled not, neither did she spin. And yet, if all these folk were like poor, stupid, docile Jenny, it would be simpler. But what earthly sense was there in trying to do anything with a girl like Zora, so stupid in some matters, so startlingly bright in others, and so stubborn in everything? Here she was doing some work twice as well and twice as fast as the class, and other work she would not touch because she didn't like it. Her classification in school was nearly as difficult as her classification in the world. And Miss Taylor reached up impatiently and removed the gold pin from her stock to adjust it more comfortably when Zora sauntered past, unseeing, unheeding, with that curious gliding walk which Miss Taylor called stealthy. She laid the pin on the desk and, on sudden impulse, spoke again to the girl as she arranged her neck trimmings. Zora, she said evenly, "Why didn't you come to class when I called?" Didn't hear you," said Zora, looking at her full-eyed and telling the half truth easily. Miss Taylor was sure Zora was lying, and she knew that she had lied to her on other occasions. 
Indeed, she had found lying customary in this community, and she had a New England horror of it. She looked at Zora disapprovingly, while Zora looked at her quite impersonally but steadily. Then Miss Taylor braced herself mentally and took the war into Africa. Do you ever tell lies, Zora? Yes. Don't you know that it is a wicked, bad habit? Why? Because God hates them. How does you know He does? Zora's tone was still impersonal. He hates all evil. But why is lies evil? Because they make us deceive each other. Is that wrong? Yes. Zora bent forward and looked squarely into Miss Taylor's blue eyes. Miss Taylor looked into the velvet blackness of hers and wondered what they veiled. Is it wrong? Asked Zora. To make believe you likes people when you don't, when you's afraid of them and thinks they may rub off and dirty you. Why? Why? Yes, if you if you deceive, then you lie sometimes, don't you? Miss Taylor stared helplessly at the solemn eyes that seemed to look so deeply into her. Perhaps I do, Zora. I'm sure I don't mean to, and I hope God will forgive me. Zora softened. Oh, I reckon He will if He's a good God, because He'd know that lies like that are heaps better than babbling the truth right out. Only, she added severely, you mustn't keep saying it's wicked to lie, 'cause it ain't. Sometimes I lies, she reflected pensively, and sometimes I don't. It depends. Miss Taylor forgot her collar and fingered the pen on the desk. She felt at once a desperate desire to know this girl better and to establish her own authority. Yet how should she do it? She kept toying with the pen, and Zora watched her. Then Miss Taylor said absently, "Zora, what do you propose to do when you grow up?" Zora considered, think and walk and rest. She concluded. I mean, what work? Work? Oh, I shan't work. I don't like work. Do you? Miss Taylor winced, wondering if the girl were lying again. She said quickly, "Why, yes. That is, I like some kinds of work. What kinds?" But Miss Taylor refused to have the matter made personal, as Zora had a disconcerting way of pointing all their discussions. Everybody likes some kinds of work, she insisted. If you likes it. It ain't work," declared Zora. But Mary Taylor proceeded around her circumscribed circle. "You might make a good cook or a maid." "I hate cooking. What's a maid? Why, a woman who helps others, helps folks that they love. I like that." "It's not a question of affection," said Miss Taylor firmly. "One is paid for it. I wouldn't work for pay." "But you'll have to work, child. You'll have to earn a living." "Do you work for pay?" I work to earn a living. Same thing, I reckon, and it ain't true. Living just comes free, like, like sunshine. Stuff, Zora. Your people must learn to work and work steadily and work hard. She stopped, for she was sure Zora was not listening. The faraway look was in her eyes, and they were shining. She was beautiful as she stood there, strangely, almost uncannily. But startlingly beautiful, with her rich dark skin, softly molded features, and wonderful eyes. My people, my people, she murmured half to herself. Do you know my people? They don't never work. They plays. They is all little funny dark people. They flies and creeps and crawls, slippery like, and they cries and calls. Ah,、oh, my people, my poor little people. They misses me these days. Because they are shadowy things that sing and smell and bloom in dark and terrible nights. 
Miss Taylor started up. Zora, I believe you're crazy, she cried. But Zora was looking at her calmly again. We's both crazy, ain't we? She returned with a simplicity that left the teacher helpless. Miss Taylor hurried out, forgetting her pen. Zora looked it over leisurely and tried it on. She decided that she liked it, and putting it in her pocket, went out too. School was out, but the sun was still high as Bless hurried from the barn up the big road beside the soft shadows of the swamp. His head was busy with new thoughts, and his lips were whistling merrily. For today, Zor was to show him the long-dreamed-of spot for the planting of the silver fleece. He hastened toward the Cresswell mansion and glanced anxiously up the road. At last, he saw her coming, swinging down the road, lithe and dark, with a big white basket of clothes poised on her head. Zora! He yodeled as she waved her apron. He eased her burden to the ground, and they sat down together. He nervous and eager, she silent, passive, but her eyes restless. Bless was full of his plans. Zora, he said, we'll make it the finest bell ever raised in tombs. We'll just work it to the inch, just love it into life. She considered the matter intently. But presently, how can we sell it without the Cresswells knowing? We'll just take it to them and give them half, like the other tenants. But the swamp is mortal, thick, and hard to clear. We can do it. Zora had sat still, listening, but now suddenly she leapt to her feet. Come, she said. I'll take the clothes home, then we'll go. She glanced at him, down where the dreams are. And laughing, they hurried on. Elspeth stood in the path that wound down to the cottage, and without a word, Zora dropped the basket at her feet. She turned back, but Bless, struck by a thought, paused. The old woman was short, broad, black, and wrinkled, with yellow fangs, red hanging lips, and wicked eyes. She leered at them. The boy shrank before it, but stood his ground. On Elspeth, he began, Zora and I are going to plant and tend some cotton to pay for her schooling. Just the best cotton we can find. And I heard, he hesitated, I heard you had some wonderful seed. Yes, I's got the seed, I's got it. Wonder seed, sowed with the three spells of Obi and the old land ten thousand moons ago. But you couldn't plant it. With a sudden shrillness, it would kill you. But, Bless tried to object, but she waved him away. Get the ground, get the ground, dig it, pet it. And we'll see what we'll see. And she disappeared. Zora was not sure that it had been wise to tell their secret. I was going to steal the seed, she said. I knows where it is, and I don't fear conjure. You mustn't steal, Zora, said Bless gravely. Why? Zora quickly asked. But before he answered, they both forgot, for their faces were turned toward the wonder of the swamp. The golden sun was pouring floods of glory through the slim black trees, and the mystic somber pools caught and tossed back the glow in darker, duller crimson. Long echoing cries leapt to and fro, silent footsteps crept hither and yonder, and the girl's eyes gleamed with a wild new joy. The dreams, she cried, the dreams. And leaping ahead, she danced along the shadowed path. He hastened after her, but she flew fast and faster. He followed, laughing, calling, pleading. He saw her twinkling limbs a-dancing as once he saw them dance in a halo of firelight. But now the fire was the fire of the world. Her garments twined and flew in shadowy drapings about the perfect molding of her young and dark half-naked figure. Her heavy hair had burst its fastenings and lay in stiff and straggling masses, bending reluctantly to the breeze like curled smoke. 
while all about the mad wild singing rose and fell and trembled till his head whirled. He paused uncertainly at the parting of the paths, crying, Sora! Sora! As for some lost soul, Sora! Sora! echoed the cry faintly. Abruptly the music fell. There came a long, slow-growing silence, and then with a flutter she was beside him again, laughing in his ears and crying with mocking voice. Is you a feared, honey? He saw in her eyes young yearnings, but could speak nothing. He could only clasp her hand tightly, and again down they raced through the wood. All at once the swamp changed and chilled to a dull grayness. Tall, dull trees started down upon the murky waters, and long pendant streamings of moss-like tears dripped from tree to earth. Slowly and warily they threaded their way. Are you sure of the path, Zora? He once inquired anxiously. I can find it asleep, she answered, skipping sure-footed onward. He continued to hold her hand tightly, and his own pace never slackened. Around them the gray and death-like wilderness darkened. They felt and saw the cold white mist rising slowly from the ground and the waters growing blacker and broader. At last they came to what seemed the end. Silently and dismally the half-dead forest with its ghostly moss lowered and darkened and the black waters spread into a great silent lake of slimy ooze. The dead trunk of a fallen tree lay straight in front, torn and twisted, its top hidden yonder and mingled with impenetrable undergrowth. Where now, Zora? he cried. In a moment she had slipped her hand away and was scrambling up the tree trunk. The waters yawned murkily below. Careful, careful, he warned, struggling after her until she disappeared amid the leaves. He followed eagerly but cautiously, and all at once found himself confronting a paradise. Before them lay a long island opening to the south on the Black Lake, but sheltered north and east by the dense undergrowth of the Black Swamp and the rampart of dead and living trees. The soil was virgin and black, thickly covered over with a tangle of bushes, vines, and smaller growth, all brilliant with early leaves and wild flowers. A pretty tough proposition for clearing and plowing, said Bless with practiced eye. But Zora eagerly surveyed the prospect. It's where the drains lives, she whispered. Meantime, Miss Taylor had missed her brooch and searched for it in vain. In the midst of this pursuit, the truth occurred to her. Zora had stolen it. Negroes would steal, everybody said. Well, she must and would have the pen. And she started for Elspeth's cabin. On the way, she met the old woman in the path, but got little satisfaction. Elspeth merely grunted ungraciously while eyeing the white woman with suspicion. Mary Taylor, again alone, sat down at a turn in the path, just out of sight of the house, and waited. Soon she saw, with a certain grim satisfaction, Zora and Bless emerging from the swamp, engaged in earnest conversation. Here was an opportunity to overwhelm both with an unforgettable reprimand. She rose before them like a spectral vengeance. Zora, I want my pin. Bless started and stared, but Zora eyed her calmly with something like disdain. What pin? She returned, unmoved. Zora, don't deny that you took my pin from the desk this afternoon, the teacher commanded severely. I didn't say I didn't take no pin. Persons who will lie and steal will do anything. Why shouldn't people do anything they wants to? And you knew the pin was mine. I saw you were wearing it, admitted Zora easily. Then you have stolen it, and you are a thief. Still, Zora appeared to be unimpressed with the heinousness of her fault. Did you make that pin? she asked. No, but it is mine. Why is it yours? Because it was given to me. But you don't need it. 
You've got four of the prettier ones. I counted. That makes no difference. Yes, it does. Folks ain't got no right to things they don't need. That makes no difference, Sora, and you know it. The pin is mine. You stole it. If you had wanted a pen and asked me, I might have given you a... The girl blazed. I don't want your gifts, she almost hissed. You don't own what you don't need and can't use. God owns it, and I'm going to send it back to him. With a swift motion, she whipped the pen from her pocket and raised her arm to hurl it into the swamp. Bless caught her hand. He caught it lightly and smiled sorrowfully into her eyes. She wavered a moment, then the answering light sprang to her face. Dropping the brooch into his hand, she wheeled and fled toward the cabin. Bless handed it silently to Miss Taylor. Mary Taylor was beside herself with impatient anger, and anger intensified by a conviction of utter helplessness to cope with any strained or unusual situations between herself and these two. Alwyn, she said sharply, I shall report Sora for stealing, and you may report yourself to Miss Smith tonight for disrespect toward a teacher. End of chapter 7 The Cresswells, father and son, were at breakfast. The daughter was taking her coffee and rolls upstairs in bed. Pshaw, I don't like it, declared Harry Cresswell, tossing the letter back to his father. I tell you, it is a damned Yankee trick. He was a man of 35, smooth and white, slight, well-bred and masterful. His father, St. John Cresswell, was 60, white-haired, mustached, and goateed, a stately, kindly old man with a temper and much family pride. Well, well, he said, his air half preoccupied, half unconcerned. I suppose so, and yet, he read the letter again aloud. Approaching you as one of the most influential landowners of Alabama on a confidential matter. Hmm, <laughs> hmm. A combination of capital and power such as this nation has never seen. Cotton manufacturers and cotton growers. Well, well. Of course, I suppose there's nothing in it. And yet, Harry, my boy, this cotton growing business is getting in a pretty tight pinch. Unless relief comes somehow, well, we'll just have to quit. We simply can't keep the cost of cotton down to a remunerative figure with niggers getting scarcer and dearer. Every year I have to pinch him closer and closer. I had to pay Maxwell 250 to get that old darky and his boys turned over to me, and one of the young ones has run away already. Harry lighted a cigarette. We must drive them all. You're too easy, Father. They understand that. By the way, what did that letter say about a sister? Says he's got a sister over at the nigger school whom perhaps we know. Heh. <laughs> I suppose he thinks we dine there occasionally, <laughs> the old man chuckled. That reminds me, Elspeth is sending her gal there. What's that? An angry gleam shot into the younger man's eye. Yes, she announced this morning, pert as you please, that she couldn't tote clothes any more. She had to study. Damn it, this thing is going too far. We can't keep a maid or a plowboy on the place because of this devilish school. It's going to ruin the whole labor system. We've been too mild and decent. I'm going to put my foot down right here. I'll make Elspeth take that gal out of that school if I have to horsewhip her. And I'll warn the school against further interference with our tenants. Here in less than a week go two plow hands. And now this girl. 
The old man smiled. You'll hardly miss any work Zora does, he said. I'll make her work. She's given herself too many damned airs. I know who's back of this. It's that nigger we saw talking to the white woman in the field the other day. Well, don't work yourself up. The winch don't amount to much anyhow. By the way, though, if you do go to the school, it won't hurt to see this tailor sister and size up the family. Pshaw, I'm going to give that Smith woman such a scare, she'll keep her hands off our niggers. And Harry Cresswell rode away. Mary Taylor had charge of the office that morning while Miss Smith, shut up in her bedroom, went laboriously over her accounts. Miss Mary suddenly sat up, threw a hasty glance into the glass, and felt the back of her belt. It was. It couldn't be. Surely it was Mr. Harry Cresswell riding through the gateway on his beautiful white mare. He kicked the gate open rather viciously, did not stop to close it, and rode straight across the lawn. Miss Taylor noticed his riding breeches and leggings, his white linen and white, clean-cut, high-bred face. Such apparitions were few about the country lands. She felt inclined to flutter, but gripped herself. Good morning, she said a little stiffly. Mr. Cresswell halted and stared. Then, lifting the hat which he had neglected to remove and crossing the hall, he bowed in stately grace. Miss Taylor was no ordinary picture. Her brown hair was almost golden. Her dark eyes shone blue. Her skin was clear and healthy, and her white dress, happy coincidence, had been laundered that very morning. Her half-suppressed excitement at the sudden duty of welcoming the great aristocrat of the county gave a piquancy to her prettiness. The devil commented Mr. Harry Cresswell to himself, but to Miss Taylor, I beg your pardon, uh, Miss Smith. No. I'm sorry. Miss Smith is engaged this morning. I am Miss Taylor. I cannot share Miss Taylor's sorrow," returned Mr. Cresswell gravely. "For I believe I have the honor of some correspondence with Miss Taylor's brother." Mr. Cresswell searched for the letter but did not find it. "Oh, has John written you?" she beamed suddenly. "I'm so glad. It's more than he's done for me this three months. I beg your pardon. Do sit down." I think you'll find this one easier. Our stock of chairs is limited. It was delightful to have a casual meeting receive this social stamp. The girl was all at once transfigured, animated, glowing, lovely. All of which did not escape the caller's appraising inspection. There," said Mr. Cresswell. "I've left your gate gaping. Oh, don't mind. I hope John's well. Uh, the truth is," confessed Cresswell. It was a business matter, cotton, you know. John is nothing but cotton. I tell him his soul is fibrous. He mentioned your being here, and I thought I'd stop over and welcome you to the South. Thank you," returned Miss Taylor, reddening with pleasure despite herself. There was a real sincerity in the tone. All this confirmed so many convictions of hers. Of course, you know how it is in the South," Cresswell pursued. The opening having been so easily accomplished, I understand perfectly. My sister would be delighted to meet you, but oh, I realize the difficulties. Perhaps you wouldn't mind riding by some day. It's embarrassing to suggest this, but you know, Miss Taylor was perfectly self-possessed. Mister Cresswell. She said seriously, "I know very well that it wouldn't do for your sister to call here, and I shan't mind a bit coming by to see her first. 
I don't believe in standing on stupid ceremony. Cresswell thanked her with quiet cordiality and suggested that when he was driving by, he might pick her up in his gig some morning. Miss Taylor expressed her pleasure at the prospect. Then the talk wandered to general matters. The rain, the trees, the people round about, and, inevitably, the Negro. Oh, by the by, said Mr. Cresswell, frowning and hesitating over the recollection of his errand's purpose. There was one matter. He paused. Miss Taylor leant forward, all interest. I hardly know that I ought to mention it, but your school... This charming young lady disarmed his truculent spirit, and the usually collected and determined young man was at a loss how to proceed. The girl, however, was obviously impressed and pleased by his evidence of interest, whatever its nature. So in a manner vastly different from the one he had intended to assume, he continued, There is a way in which we may be of service to you, and that is by enlightening you upon points concerning which the nature of your position, both as teacher and socially, must keep you in the dark. For instance, all these Negroes are, as you know, of wretchedly low morals, but there are a few so depraved that it would be suicidal to take them into this school. We recognize the good you are doing, but we do not want it more than offset by utter lack of discrimination in choosing your material. Certainly not. Have we? Miss Mary faltered. This beginning was a bit ominous, wholly unexpected. There is a girl, Zora, who has just entered, who I must speak candidly, who ought not to be here. I thought it but right to let you know. Thank you so much. I'll tell Miss Smith. Mary Taylor suddenly felt herself a judge of character. I suspected that she was not what she ought to be. Believe me, we appreciate your interest. A few more words, and Mr. Cresswell, after bending courteously over her hand with a deference no New Englander had ever shown, was riding away on his white mare. For a while, Mary Taylor sat very quietly. It was like a breath of air from the real world, this hour's chat with a well-bred gentleman. She wondered how she had done her part. Had she been too eager and schoolgirlish? Had she met this stately ceremony with enough breeding to show that she, too, was somebody? She pounced upon Miss Smith the minute that lady entered the office. Miss Smith, who do you think has been here? She burst out enthusiastically. I saw him on the lawn. There was a suspicious lack of warmth in this brief affirmation. He was so gracious and kindly, and he knows my brother. And, oh, Miss Smith, we've got to send that Zora right away. Indeed. The observation was not even interrogatory. The preceptress of the struggling school for Negro children merely evinced patience for the younger woman's fervency. Yes, he says she's utterly depraved. Said that, did he? Miss Smith watched her with tranquil regard. Miss Taylor paused. Of course we cannot think of keeping her. Miss Smith pursed her lips, offering her first expression of opinion. I guess we'll worry along with her a little while anyhow. The girl stared at Miss Smith in honest, if unpardonable, amazement. Do you mean to say that you are going to keep in this school a girl who not only lies and steals, but is positively immoral? Miss Smith smiled, wholly unmoved. No, but I mean that I am here to learn from those whose ideas of right do not agree with mine, to discover why they differ, and to let them learn of me, so far as I am worthy." Mary Taylor was not unappreciative of Miss Smith's stern high-mindedness, 
but her heart hardened to this, to her, misdirected zeal. Echo of the spirit of an older day, Miss Smith seemed to her to be cramped and paralyzed in an armor of prejudice and sectionalisms. Plain speaking was the only course, and Mary, if a little complacent perhaps in her frankness, was sincere in her purpose. I think, Miss Smith, you are making a very grave mistake. I regard Zora as a very undesirable person from every point of view. I look upon Mr. Cresswell's visit today as almost providential. He came offering an olive branch from the white aristocracy to this work to bespeak his appreciation and safeguard the future. Moreover, and Miss Taylor's voice gathered firmness despite Miss Smith's inscrutable eye. Moreover, I have reason to know that the disposition, indeed the plan in certain quarters to help this work materially depends very largely on your willingness to meet the advances of the southern whites halfway. She paused for a reply or a question. Receiving neither, she walked with dignity up the stairs. From her window, she could see Cresswell straight shoulders as he rode toward town, and beyond him a black speck in the road. But she could not see the smile on Mr. Cresswell's lips, nor did she hear him remark twice, with seeming irrelevance, The devil! The rider, being closer to it, recognized in Mary Taylor's black speck, bless Alwyn walking toward him rapidly, with axe and hoe on shoulder, whistling merrily. They saw each other almost at the same moment, and whistle and smile faded. Mr. Cresswell knew the Negro by sight and disliked him. He belonged in his mind to that younger class of half-educated blacks who were impudent and disrespectful toward their superiors, not even touching his hat when he met a white man. Moreover, he was sure that it was Miss Taylor with whom this boy had been talking so long and familiarly in the cotton field last spring, an offense doubly heinous now that he had seen Miss Taylor. His first impulse was to halt the Negro then and there and tell him a few plain truths, but he did not feel quarrelsome at the moment, and there was, after all, nothing very tangible to justify a berating. The fellow's impudence was sure to increase, and then so he merely reined his horse to the better part of the footpath and rode on. Bless, too, was thinking. He knew the well-dressed man with his milk-white face and overbearing way. He would expect to be greeted with raised hat, but Bless bit his lips and pulled down his cap firmly. The axe, too, in some indistinct way felt good in his hand. He saw the horse coming in his pathway and stepping aside in the dust continued on his way, neither looking nor speaking. So they passed each other by, Mr. Cresswell to town, blessed to the swamp, apparently ignorant of each other's very existence. Yet as the space widened between them, each felt a more vindictive anger for the other. How dares the black puppy to ignore Cresswell on the highway? If this went on, the day would surely come when Negroes felt no respect or fear whatever for whites. And then, my God, Mr. Cresswell struck his mare with a vicious blow and dashed toward town. The black boy, too, went his way in silent, burning rage. Why should he be elbowed into the roadside dust by an insolent bully? Why had he not stood his ground? Pshaw! All this fine frenzy was useless, and he knew it. The sweat oozed on his forehead. It wasn't man against man or he would have dragged the pale puppy from his horse and rubbed his face in the earth. It wasn't even one against many, else how willingly, swinging his axe, would he have stood his ground before a mob. No, it was one against a world. 
a world of power, opinion, wealth, opportunity, and he, the one, must cringe and bear in silence, lest the world crash about the ears of his people. He slowly plodded on in bitter silence toward the swamp, but the day was balmy, the way was beautiful, contempt slowly succeeded anger, and hope soon triumphed over all. For yonder was Zora, poised, waiting, and behind her lay the field of dreams. End of chapter 8 Zora looked down upon Bless where he stood to his knees in mud. The toil was beyond exhilaration. It was sickening weariness and panting despair. The great roots twined in one unbroken snarl clung frantically to the black soil. The vines and bushes fought back with thorn and bramble. Zora stood wiping the blood from her hands and staring at Bless. She saw the long gnarled fingers of the tough little trees and they looked like the fingers of Elspeth down there beneath the earth pulling against the boy. Slowly Zora forgot her blood and pain. Who would win, the witch or Jason? Bless looked up and saw the bleeding hands. With a bound he was beside her. Zora! The cry seemed wrung from his heart by contrition. Why had he not known, not seen before? Zora, come right out of this. Sit down here and rest. She looked at him unwaveringly. There was no flinching of her spirit. I shan't do it, she said. You's working, and I's going to work. But Zora, you're not used to such work, and I am. You're tired out. So is you, was her reply. He looked himself over ruefully and, dropping his axe, sat down beside her on a great log. Silently they contemplated the land. It seemed indeed a hopeless task. Then they looked at each other in sudden, unspoken fear of failure. If we only had a mule, he sighed. Immediately her face lighted and her lips parted, but she said nothing. He presently bounded to his feet. Never mind, Zora. Tomorrow's Saturday, and I'll work all day. We just will get it done. Sometime, his mouth closed with determination. We won't work anymore today, then? cried Zora, her eagerness betraying itself despite her efforts to hide it. You won't, affirmed Bless. But I've got to do just a little. But Zora was adamant. He was tired. She was tired. They would rest. Tomorrow, with the rising sun, they would begin again. There'll be a bright moon tonight, ventured Bless. Then I'll come, too. Zora announced positively, and he had to promise for her sake to rest. They went up the path together and parted diffidently. He, watching her flit away with sorrowful eyes, a little disturbed and puzzled at the burden he had voluntarily assumed, but never dreaming of drawing back. Zora did not go far. No sooner did she know herself well out of his sight than she dropped lightly down beside the path, listening intently until the last echo of its footsteps had died away. Then, leaving the cabin on her right and the scene of their toil on her left, she cut straight through the swamp, skirted the big road, and in a half hour was in the lower meadows of the Cresswell plantations, where the tired stock was being turned out to graze for the night. Here, in the shadow of the woods, she lingered. Slowly, but with infinite patience, she broke one strand after another of the barbed wire fencing, watching the while the sun grow great and crimson, and die at last in mighty splendor behind the dimmer westward forests. The voices of the hands and hostlers grew fainter and thinner in the distance of purple twilight until the last of them disappeared. 
Silence fell, deep and soft, the silence of a day sinking to sleep. Not until then did Zora steal forth from her hiding place. She had chosen her mule long before, a big black beast snorting over its pile of corn, and gliding up to him, she gathered his supper into her skirt, found a stout halter, and fed him sparingly as he followed her. Quickly she unfastened the pieces of the fence, led the animal through and spliced them again, and then, with fox-like caution, she guided her prize through the labyrinthine windings of the swamp. It was dark and haunting, and ever and again rose lonely night cries. The girl trembled a little but plodded resolutely on until the dim silver disk of the half-moon began to glimmer through the trees. Then she pressed on more swiftly and fed more scantily until finally, with the moonlight pouring over them at the black lagoon, Zora attempted to drive the animal into the still waters, but he gave a loud protesting snort and balked. By subtle temptings, she gave him to understand that plenty lay beyond the dark waters, and quickly swinging herself on his back, she started to ride him up and down along the edge of the lagoon, petting and whispering to him of good things beyond. Slowly her eyes grew wide. She seemed to be riding out of dreamland on some hobgoblin beast. Deeper and deeper they penetrated into the dark waters. Now they entered the slime. Now they stumbled on hidden roots, but deeper and deeper they waded until at last, turning the animal's head with a jerk and giving him a sharp stroke with the whip, she headed straight for the island. A moment the beast snorted and plunged. Higher and higher the black steel waters rose round the girl. They crept up her little limbs, swirled round her breast, and gleamed green and slimy along her shoulders. A wild terror gripped her. Maybe she was riding the devil's horse, and these were the yawning gates of hell, black and somber beneath the cold, dead radiance of the moon. She saw again the gnarled and black and claw-like fingers of Elspeth gripping and dragging her down. A scream struggled in her breast. Her fingers relaxed, and the big beast, stretching his cramped neck, rose in one mighty plunge and planted his feet on the sand of the island. Bless, hurrying down in the morning with new tools and new determination, stopped and stared in blank amazement. Zora was perched in a tree, singing softly, and beneath, a fat black mule was finishing his breakfast. Zora, he gasped, how, how did you do it? She only smiled and sang a happier measure, pausing only to whisper, Dreams, dreams, it's all dreams, he tells you. Bless frowned and stood irresolute. The song proceeded with less assurance, slower and lower, till it stopped and the singer dropped to the ground, watching him with wide eyes. He looked down at her, slight, tired, scratched but undaunted, striving blindly toward the light with staunch, unfaltering faith. A pity surged in his heart. He put his arm about her shoulders and murmured, You bold, brave child. And she shivered with joy. All day Saturday and part of Sunday they worked feverishly. The trees crashed and the stumps groaned and crept up into the air. The brambles blazed and smoked. Little animals fled for shelter, and a wide black patch of rich loam broadened and broadened till it kissed on every side but the sheltered east, the black waters of the lagoon. Late Sunday night, the mule again swam the slimy lagoon and disappeared toward the Cresswell fields. Then Bless sat down beside Zora, facing the fields, and gravely took her hand. She looked at him in quick, breathless fear. 
Zora, he said, sometimes you tell lies, don't you? Yes, she said slowly. Sometimes. And Zora, sometimes you steal. You stole that pen from Miss Taylor, and we stole Mr. Cresswell's mule for two days. Yes, she said faintly, with a perplexed wrinkle in her brows. I stole it. Well, Zora, I don't want you to ever tell another lie or ever take anything that doesn't belong to you. She looked at him silently, with the shadow of something like terror far back in the depths of her deep eyes. Always tell the truth? She repeated slowly. Yes. Her fingers worked nervously. All the truth? She asked. He thought a while. No, said he finally. It's not necessary always to tell the truth, but never tell anything that isn't the truth. Never? Never. Even if it hurts me? Even if it hurts God is good. He will not let it hurt much. He's a fair God, ain't he? She mused, scanning the evening sky. Yes, he's fair. He wouldn't take advantage of a little girl that did wrong when she didn't know it was wrong. Her face lightened and she held his hands in both hers and said solemnly as though saying a prayer, I won't lie anymore and I won't steal. And she looked at him in startled wistfulness. He remembered it in after years, but he felt he had preached enough. And now for the sea, he interrupted joyously. And then the silver fleece. That night, for the first time, Bless entered Zora's home. It was a single low black room, smoke-shadowed and dirty, with two dingy beds and a gaping fireplace. On one side of the fireplace sat the yellow woman, young with traces of beauty, holding the white child in her arms. On the other, hugging the blaze, huddled a formless heap wreathed in coils of tobacco smoke. Elspeth, Zora's mother. Zora said nothing, but glided in and stood in the shadows. Good evening, said Bless cheerily. The woman with the baby alone responded. I came for the seed you promised us, the cotton seed. The hag wheeled and approached him swiftly, grasping his shoulders and twisting her face into his. She was a horrible thing, filthy of breath, dirty, with dribbling mouth and red eyes. Her few long black teeth hung loosely like tusks, and the folds of fat on her chin curled down on her great neck. Bless shuddered and stepped back. Is you a feared, honey? She whispered. No, he said sturdily. <laughs> yes, you is. Everybody's a fear of old Elspeth, but she won't hurt you. You's got the spell. And wheeling again, she was back at the fire. But the seed, he ventured. She pointed impressively rueward. The dark of the moon, boy, the dark of the moon. The first dark at midnight. Bless could not wring another word from her, nor did the ancient witch by word or look again give the slightest indication that she was aware of his presence. With reluctant farewell, Bless turned home. For a space, Zora watched him, and once she started after him, but came slowly back and sat by the fireplace. Out of the night came voices and laughter, and the sound of wheels and galloping horses. It was not the soft, rollicking laughter of black men, but the keener, more metallic sound of white men's cries, and Bless Alwyn paused at the edge of the wood, looked back and hesitated but decided after a moment to go home and to bed. Zora, however, leapt to her feet and fled into the night while the hag screamed after her and cursed. There was tramping of feet on the cabin floor and loud voices and singing and cursing. Where's Zora? Someone yelled with an oath. Damn it, where is she? 
I haven't seen her for a year, you old devil. The hag whimpered and snarled. Far down in the field of the fleece, Zora lay curled beneath a tall, dark tree asleep. All night there was coming and going in the cabin. The talk and laughter grew loud and boisterous, and the red fire glared in the night. The days flew by and the moon darkened. In the swamp, the hidden island lay spaded and bedded, and Bless was throwing up a dike around the edge. Zora helped him until he came to the black oak at the western edge. It was a large, twisted thing with one low-flying limb that curled out across another tree and made a mighty seat above the waters. Don't throw the dirt up too high there, she begged. It'll bring my seat too near the earth. He looked up. Why, it's a throne, he laughed. It needs a roof, he whimsically told her when his day's work was done. Deftly twisting and intertwining the branches of tree and bush, he wove a canopy of living green that shadowed the curious nest and warded it snugly from wind and water. Early next morning, Bless slipped down and improved the nest, adding footrests to make the climbing easy, peepholes east and west, a bit of carpet over the bark, and on the rough main trunk, a little picture in blue and gold of Bougereau's Madonna. Zora sat hidden and alone in silent ecstasy. Bless peeped in. There was no room to enter. The girl was staring silently at the Madonna. She seemed to feel rather than hear his presence, and she inquired softly, Who is it, Bless? The mother of God, he answered reverently. And why does she hold a lily? It stands for purity. She was a good woman. With a baby, Zora added slowly. Yes, said Bless, and then more quickly, It is the Christ child, God's baby. God is the father of all the little babies, ain't he, Bless? Why, yes, yes, of course. Only this little baby didn't have any other father. Yes, I know one like that, she said, and then she added softly, Oh, little Christ baby. Bless hesitated, and before he found words, Zora was saying, How white she is! She's as white as the lily, Bless. I'm sorry she's white, but what's purity? Just whiteness? Bless glanced at her awkwardly, but she was still staring wide-eyed at the picture, and her voice was earnest. She was now so old and again so much a child, an eager, questioning child, that there seemed about her innocence something holy. It... It means, he stammered, groping for meanings. It means being good, just as good as a woman knows how. She wheeled quickly toward him and asked him eagerly. Not better, not better than she knows, but just as good in, in lying and stealing and, and everything? Bless smiled. No, not better than she knows, but just as good. She trembled happily. I'm pure, she said with a strange little breaking voice and gesture. A sob struggled in his throat. Of course you are, he whispered tenderly, hiding her little hands in his. I, I was so afraid sometimes that I wasn't, she whispered, lifting up to him her eyes streaming with tears. Silently he kissed her lips. From that day on they walked together in a new world. No revealing word was spoken, no vows were given, none asked for. But a new bond held them. She grew older, quieter, taller, he humbler, more tender and reverent as they toiled together. So the days passed. The sun burned in the heavens, but the silvered glory of the moon grew fainter and fainter, and each night it rose later than the night before. Then one day Zora whispered, Tonight. Bless came to the cabin, and he and Zor and Elspeth sat silently around the fireplace with its meager embers. 
The night was balmy and still, only occasionally a wandering breeze searching the hidden places of the swamp, or the call and song of night birds jarred the stillness. Long they sat, until the silence crept into Bless's flesh. Stretching out his hand, he touched Zora's, clasping it. After time, the old woman rose and hobbled to the big black chest. Out of it she brought an old bag of cotton seed, not the white green seed which Bless had always known, but small, smooth black seeds which she handled carefully, dipping her hands deep down and letting them drop through her gnarled fingers. And so again they sat and waited and waited, saying no word. Not until the stars of midnight had swung to the zenith did they start down through the swamp. Bless sought to guide the old woman, but he found she knew the way better than he did, her shadowy figure darting in and out among the trunks till they crossed the tree bridge, moved ever noiselessly ahead. She motioned the boy and girl away to the thicket at the edge and stood still and black in the midst of the cleared island. Bless slipped his arm protectingly around Zora, glancing fearfully about in the darkness. Slowly a great cry rose and swept the island. It struck madly and sharply and then died away to uneasy murmuring. From far away there seemed to come the echo or the answer to the call. The form of Elspeth blurred the night dimly far off, almost disappearing and then growing blacker and larger. They heard the whispering swish, swish of falling seed. They felt the heavy tread of a great coming body. The form of the old woman suddenly loomed black above them, hovering a moment, formless and vast, then fading away again, and the swish-swish of the falling seed alone rose in the silence of the night. At last all was still, a long silence. Then again the air seemed suddenly filled with that great and awful cry, its echoing answers screamed afar, and they heard the ruckus voice of Elspeth beating in their ears. The sea done sold. The sea done sold. End of chapter nine.